Welcome to episode 43 of the Owl and Badger podcast. My name is Tim and I'm joined by my very good friend Helen and we are two Christians who are seeking to understand the world around us through a biblical worldview. We want to encourage our listeners to apply critical thinking to current events and pursue truth as we seek to live for Christ. In this special episode, we are pleased to be joined by someone who has been a beacon of critical thinking when it comes to the onslaught of all things COVID and more recently, the crazy agenda of net zero. This has not come without cost as as this man has been ostracised, censored and vilified. Yet, this has not prevented him from bringing great clarity to so many, including Helen and myself through reasoned analysis and arguments, through making complex data understandable and clear, and ultimately providing compelling evidence that backs up the truth. It's probably an understatement to say that his work has been hugely significant in dismantling the lies we have been told. And so it's great to welcome Professor Norman Fenton to the Owl and Badger podcast. Norman, thank you for taking the time to do this. It's great to have you with us. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me on. I'm very pleased to to discuss the things that uh, you just mentioned. Excellent, excellent. Well, look, many of our listeners will know who you are, but for those that might not, can you just give a bit more uh, background to to who it is you are and, and and what you do? Okay. Well, I'm a mathematician who, I guess, until the end of 2022, was a professor of risk in the School of Electronic Engineering and Computer Science at Queen Mary University of London. I'm now emeritus professor there because um, I retired at the end of, uh, say, 2022, uh, partly um, for kind of the reasons that you you sort of implied in the introduction, but also for some personal reasons. I, I guess until until the start of COVID, I had a, a pretty prestigious uh, career. I published sort of six books and over three hundred peer reviewed papers in different areas of maths, probability, statistics, computing, and you know, much of my work has been applied in real world decision making and risk problems. But I guess it all changed in two thousand twenty when I started to show that the entire COVID narrative was being driven by flawed and easily manipulated statistics. Mm, yeah. And then I was suddenly called a, you know, a conspiracy theorist and a, you know, rabid, a, a rabid misinformation spreader. Right. And from that point on, all, all my research papers on the subject were essentially cens- censored and uh, I was treated like a, an academic pariah. Wow, wow. It's yeah. It's it, it's it's been it's been quite a journey, I think, by the sounds of things. And and I think you know y- you first came to our attention through through the excellent work you've done in in highlighting issues around COVID testing, vaccination, and, and excess deaths. And can you can you just share some of the ways that the, the last three years that the COVID situation, if you like, has has impacted you? In terms of censorship, or in terms of just just generally, as a kind of obviously you've touched you've touched on how you know you've, you've felt you know being removed a bit, but but how yeah. has has it changed how you've how you've you've looked at the world, or has yeah? I mean, just can you expand a little bit about on what what's happened in personally for for you in, in COVID? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, even prior to COVID, I was becoming very um, I would say cynical about the quality and uh i guess you'd say sort of professionalism of, of the of the whole of academia right um i felt that 
much of that there there was a lack of i don't know that the the entire partly i guess with the, the sort of the kind of like the woke agenda and much of the strange things about sort of the, the diversity, equality, inclusion agenda was kind of like corrupting mm-hmm. uh, academia. And I, there were a number of issues also. I'd, I'd kind of like um, been involved in the sort of the climate change and net zero stuff to a certain degree. And I was and I was very sceptical of much of what was going on there in terms of the research. But as soon as with COVID, as soon as as soon as I started to highlight I think how the second wave at the end of, uh, sorry, starting in the summer of 2020 was being exaggerated by the statistical errors arising from failing to account for the rapidly increasing number of basically asymptomatic people who were being tested Mm. and the inaccuracy of the PCR test. What happened was that the, everything I was writing, all the research papers I was writing then, which were, essentially showing that the narrative that was where the i was showing that the narrative was completely flawed because they were basically using that those numbers that testing to create the impression of a massive new second wave after we just got out of the uh the lockdown the first lockdowns because what was yeah. happening was that when the lockdown eased then um they people were going back to school and work and they started that mass testing of basically healthy people and we were discovering that our work was showing that most of those people who didn't have uh, symptoms, you know, healthy people, a lot of that, most of those who were testing positive PCR tests never developed or went on to get symptoms. So it was basically they were essentially false positives. And yet by massively driving up the numbers, they were um, essentially cre- creating that second wave. Basically, the, the more you test, the more people you're going to find who are um, classified as cases. And with all of all the, the definitions of deaths as well, basically being linked to just whether you had had a piece of positive PCR test within 28 days of death, et cetera, you were seeing this massive rise of, of COVID deaths as well. So you get this um, enormous apparent second wave, which was also the justification, not just for the, for the next major lockdown, uh, towards the end of 2022, but the the justification for saying, well, the, the the vaccines are the only way out of this. Yeah, yeah. And of course, fairly soon after, I mean, I was already concerned about the lack of safety of the, the, the vaccines even before they were basically you know, started to be delivered at the end of 2020 mm-hmm. in the UK because colleagues who you know, who are sort of epidemiologists and, or, you know, uh, biologists as well, because I've worked with um, many people in different disciplines because of my risk assessment work in the kind of like the healthcare area. They were worried about the um, lack of, you know, lack of, you know, there was no safety testing, basically, it was done, almost none. Um, I think we were already getting wind of the fact that the the, the trials were not what they were made out to be. Um, so I was really concerned about the, the vaccine. But we started as soon as they, we saw the early numbers that were being delivered by the by the Office of National Statistics on um, mortality by vaccination status. We saw that there were early serious safety signals. Right. And so, again, we started to highlight that. And so, again, 
I was hitting two raw nerves, as it were, which were countering the official narrative. One, the idea that the there was this massive second wave, which we believe didn't really exist. All the other independent data, for example, the ambulance data, the hospital data, was showing, you know, the 999 data was showing that there was no big second wave. You just had the normal sort of winter, autumn, winter increase in respiratory viruses. You know, nothing, nothing out of the unusual, certainly no massive second wave, you know, of a completely novel virus. And uh, then showing this, this you know, early signs of lack of uh, safety of the uh, vaccines. We were seeing these spikes. Well, we were we were showing there were problems, there were flaws in the ONS data, and that what it was really showing was that there were these strange spikes in mortality of the supposedly unvaccinated, just at the time when the vaccines were being rolled out for. Um, in each age group, and of course, it was due to a misclass. There was a misclassification problem. We, it was clear that they were, weren't classifying the uh, those who were dying shortly after vaccination as vaccinated. So there yeah. were clear problems with the data, and there were clear which were actually rather than showing as they were suggesting that the vaccines were, you know, apparently saving, you know, somehow saving lives. It was. It seemed to be the opposite. So everything I was doing then was 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 basically countering the crucial narrative that was being presented. And then the censorship, I mean, it, uh, the attacks on me were vicious from that point on. And, and the, the censorship were massive. You know, I was getting all my papers. None of them were even, they were bad, being rejected even before review. Yeah, and we couldn't, wow. we, we couldn't even get we couldn't even get the papers onto the sort of the preprint service, which you know supposedly any anybody should be on. And I was getting censored by anything I was putting on YouTube was getting censored. Anything in this area, um, I was having um, uh, being basically disinvited from seminars, even at my own institution where I, I was always used to give. Uh, seminars, for example, to our medical school, and when this started to happen, I got I was invited and then sort of disinvited at the last minute because campaigns to have me um, basically cancelled were you know, this were sort of whipped up within the school because I was classified as you know a conspiracy theorist or whatever. I was kicked out of the uh, Turing Institute where I was a fellow. Even papers which I was actually had clinical academic colleagues kind of like removed themselves from papers in which I was a co-author and they also removed me from grant applications and yeah it was, it was just ridiculous I was even um you know you know a group of students for example even demanded to take to take an alternative modules that that so I think in the really um, wow oh yeah I think for example in the spring of the last time I was due to speak, and the last time I was due to do any teaching was my, I did this master's module in the spring term. And I guess it was, yeah, it was 2022 that even before the you know module started, a, gr a group of students, you know, went to, to the head of school and demanded to be removed from my module because, you know, they didn't want to be taught by this, uh, this renowned sort of conspiracy theorist. Yeah, well, Norman, you know what it is. Students know best, don't they? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but also, I mean, my Wikipedia page was was hacked, you know, with libelous statements, and I was locked out of it. Um, 
uh, and I didn't I didn't receive you know there was there was an organised campaign as well on uh, on Twitter you know to have me sort of censored and sacked from Queen Mary I didn't get any really really I didn't get any constitutional any institutional support against what were basically completely baseless attacks and. Wow. I, you know, the impression was, you know, I was having, I was also having to answer at the end, towards the end, Queen Mary was sending me these, you know, these um, the messages that they were getting and, and, and asking me to respond to them. And, and you know, I was saying, giving evidence of why these were completely baseless. And I was asked, I asked for them to, you know, make a, a sort of a public statement that these, these uh, attacks were baseless and they, they never did. Mm. It's 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 astonishing to 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 hear all hear all that because I think as as we as we as we look back now, the the, the truth the truth is is clear the truth is plain and um, yeah. you were very much on the side of of truth um, and and I think you know what one of the ways that that came up obviously and I, and I know that this perhaps is is you know close to home for you with what you've shared publicly Norman but um with with regards to the uh, legal case against AstraZeneca that's been mm, that's been yeah. that's been in the news um it's it's a bit like you know we Helen and I we, we talked about this on and off for the last two years we, we always want to resist the kind of I told you so thing because this yeah. isn't about scoring points it, it it's it's about um waking up to 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 the truth and the reality of the world in which we live and and I think more and more people hopefully are do are doing that but ju- just just briefly on this because before we move on but with regards to um AstraZeneca being obviously a defective defective jab mm-hmm. um do, do you think this is a tip is there a sense that you have that this could be a tip of an iceberg in terms of other legal cases against other pharmaceutical uh, companies it, it, it could be the trouble is that I've, I've actually written um witness statements and affidavits on loads of, of, of legal cases, okay? So, and most of them come to nothing. I mean, we were hoping there was a case that it was going to be heard in, in the High Court Fund, I think, Costa Rica last week, where there was, you know, again, high hopes there could be a major breakthrough there in actually um, sort of stopping any of the vaccine mandates. Um and you know all of the evidence was brought forward, and, and it was it, it was compelling. But there was some again some technical for some technical legal issue they managed to sort of uh, dismiss or or at least postpone the case um, uh, for another few months. And I've, and I've, this has happened all you know. There's been so many like this, and none of them really seem to have come to fruition. Hopefully, this AstraZeneca one that you mentioned there will, because there is a I mean there is an enormous amount of evidence with regards to the AstraZeneca vaccine. And we had, had indeed, as you'd expected, we'd uncovered that. Um, also, the, the problems of safety very early we earn on. We've done a lot of work in exposing how the MHRA have covered yeah. up yeah. all of, the, all of the, um, the, the safety signals, which were there right from the beginning with AstraZeneca, right? I mean, of course, with AstraZeneca, I've got a personal interest, of course, here because my wife was um, against my wishes, um, was uh, double vaccinated with AstraZeneca in yeah. March and April of 2021, and her she 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 had already been diagnosed with frontal temporal dementia, but her condition massively deteriorated um, after that second dose of the AstraZeneca. And we know I now know 
of course, didn't know at the time that the one that she had the second deadliest batch of the yes, <laughs> wow, AstraZeneca. But you know, we we'd and I, I wasn't aware at that time of all of the issues with. In, in fact, we were more aware of the issues with the MR because AstraZeneca isn't the it's that isn't the same. Um, class of vaccines as far as the mRNA technology. And uh, but before, uh, at that time, we were more concerned with, with Pfizer. We knew that there were, because we knew about a lot of the issues in the Pfizer trials, we, were, we, we thought that there was more concern. So I actually didn't realise that M the mRNA was causing more um, immediate injuries than, than, the, than the Pfizer was. I mean, we now know actually that in the, uh, based on what we know from the, the, the data, which has not even been fully, which has not even yet been made fully public, that they had on the what they call the uh, the yellow card control group, which was a group mm -hmm. of thirty thousand uh, people who signed up to actively report the any any side effects they had from from the vaccines. We know, for example, that in those very early months of two thousand twenty, from that group. I think it was over 56% of the participants in that group experienced an adverse reaction. Many of them were serious as well. But the AstraZeneca was like twice, twice the, the rate of uh, adverse reactions for AstraZeneca was actually twice that of the mRNA vaccines, interestingly enough. Um, so it, it was really, you know, it, it was it was really bad, but we only found that. You know that this was actually, they actually published and in and uh, uh, and they a a redacted and sorry they wrote but didn't publish a report which they submitted to whatever it was the pharmacovigilance um committee internally um with all of this information in right but we only got hold of that from uh, as a result of an foi request uh earlier this year so we're seeing all of this now, and of course, it's redacted. It's, it's a lot of it's redacted, but there's enough in there to reveal, you know, this information that I, you know, that I just told you. And there's a lot more that they haven't revealed. And they've they're using a strange um, get out clause of the Freedom of Information um, Act or whatever it is that whatever Act governs what the information you're you're expected to reveal, which says that whereby. They're still not releasing the detailed data, detailed safety data, especially the pregnancy data. Incidentally, they won't re they won't reveal it because they say that they they are going to publish it in a peer reviewed journal. And if if you as long as you say you're planning to publish the data in a peer reviewed journal, you that that avoids you having to release it now to the public. Now, of course, when when if and when they ever do submit this data to a peer review journal and if and when it's even accepted and published we don't know it doesn't have to be you just have to state that your plan is to do this is to make the submission and hence you don't have to give the data now that's so that's why they're still they're still not giving us the you know this safety data this detailed safety data so it's just oh, delayed support. delayed tactics isn't delayed, it? yeah yeah delayed forever basically yeah. well um one of the things I was going to say is, um, and we can put the link in the in the show notes, that um, you've got a fascinating interview you've recently done with Paula Jardine. Um, oh, yes, she's and, very good. Yeah, yeah very good. It's a really good interview. So we'll, we'll definitely put the link to that. But just um, 
changing the subject really um one of the main things that we wanted to talk to you about i mean i didn't realize that you were jewish until you mm. spoke out um in support of the mp andrew bridgen when he was yeah. accused of anti-semitism and you've recently written a series of articles explaining your concerns about real anti-semitism in in the yeah. freedom movement um yeah. under the facade of anti-zionism yeah and then the attacks in israel happened on october the 7th and you wrote a very moving blog post entitled who i am and um yeah. i thought perhaps we could talk a bit about that and you can tell us about your particular insights yeah so as you say i i, I kind of like but came out publicly as a Jew with the uh, Andrew Bridgen statement because at that time, and that was when was that? That was March of this year. Yeah. At that time, my concern was that uh, wrong accusations of anti-Semitism were sort of closing down debates about um, mm. uh, things like vaccine safety, as in the case of Andrew Bridgen, because they were yeah. saying, you know, he, he'd he'd he was actually misquoting, but he uh, um, some he was he said it was. Uh, uh, an Israeli cardiologist had said that the, the the vaccines were because of the problems with the safety of vaccines. It was like the worst, um, whatever potentially worst disaster since the Holocaust or whatever it could potentially be the were the biggest loss of life in the Holocaust. It was a quote something like that. But he was actually quoting. It was actually I think it was actually Asim Malhotra said that. And it was and. The Israeli guy, who's actually Josh Gateskoff, who's actually sort of someone I've worked with quite closely, was simply saying what what uh, Asim had said. So there was a bit of a misunderstanding <laughs> of that the whole thing. But the point was, it clearly wasn't anti-Semitic, right? No. And um, uh, but this, you know, the trumped-up claim that because he was he was sort of equating it with the Holocaust, which he wasn't, right? It was um, mm -hmm. it was accused of anti-Semitism, and there was a lot of these accusations of these wrongful accusations of anti-Semitism. I mean, someone else said things like, if you if you um, uh, scratch a, an anti-vaxxer, you'll find a you know find an anti-Semite or something like that. And anybody <laughs> who used the word globalist or anybody who used the word who, who criticised people like Soros, for example, who incidentally is, people talk about, uh, you know, Soros the Jew, uh, being Jewish. Soros completely disowned, I mean, he might have been born a Jew, but he's, he's quite openly atheist and actually disowns, hates Judaism and actually hates the state of Israel. This is another interesting thing. And yet people, for some reason, say, oh, he's, he's oh, a Zionist, he's, he's, oh, yeah. he's a globalist who's sort of that kind of thing, supporting Israel. It's completely not true. But if you so if you just criticize in Soros, that's again you, you, that's they say it's an anti-Semitic dog whistle. Which interestingly, I was accused myself of being an anti-Semitic, being an issuing anti-Semitic dog whistles because I had actually said something critical of Soros once or something like that. So uh, that's the interesting thing. I was actually very much aware and um, uh, concerned about those accusations of anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah, increasingly. I was finding even before the whole thing with the um, October 7th uh, massacre in Israel, I was finding within the freedom movement that there genuinely was anti-Semitism. Mm. And a lot of it was uh, disguised as 
anti-Zionism and the idea that the Jews or the Zionists, sorry, because I wouldn't say Jews, the Zionists were behind kind of like all of the bad things that had happened in the world in the last uh, 70 years. I was finding this and that was brought home to me when I attended the Better Way Conference in Bath in uh, June of this year. Mm-hmm. And all of the delegates, oh, sorry, all of the speakers and sponsors of that conference were given a beautifully wrapped copy of a book which was kind of like a conspiracy theory book um which i talk about i won't uh, go into details of it i don't want to give it any any publicity to be perfectly frank but um i, t- I mentioned i say what it is i give the description in the in that blog post as well as a series of articles i wrote in the conservative woman with karen Haradine. but the point was this book um was basically you know obsessed you know 50% of the book was concerned with basically pushing cons- ridiculous conspiracy theories based on you know half baked truths and very very poor references but lots of references and people think always oh, all these references when you go into detail you realize they're all ridiculous basically pushing ridiculous conspiracy theories that the you know the Jews oh, sorry the Zionists and Israelis were behind you know everything you know uh, 9-11, the 7-7 attacks, it's all, it's all the Zionists, you know, and all all the terrorist attacks, even the, you know, in the Middle East were sort of, you know, it was it was actually Israel was behind, you know, was dressed, you know, they were, they were it was it wasn't Palestinian terrorists, it was Israelis dressed up as Palestinians. Absolutely nonsensical stuff was in this was in this book. And I was quite shocked that and yet people within the movement, a lot of people got it and say, Oh, what a fantastic book this, you know, it's great, you know, this is really you know, this is this is really opening my eyes to, to everything. So I was really concerned. And I, as a result of that, was planned, had written a, this series of articles even before the 7th of October. But the, the articles didn't actually appear until afterwards because it, that was the timing of it. This all happened at the time. But, God, when October, that the massacre of the Israelis in uh like that's in on October seventh. That really that was that was jolting because of the reaction I saw from the people within the freedom movement. And now, of course, I actually not only am I Jewish, but my most of my fat my brother uh, or his family live in Israel. Mm-hmm. I my grandfather, of course, was born in what was then Palestine in eighteen ninety one, um, and. Uh, my wife's grandfather was also uh, so born in Jerusalem, which is the you know part part. I say Palestine is part of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. You know, my my wife's grandfather was also born uh, in Jerusalem. All of her family, all of her family, uh, live in Israel, um, and. Of course, we you know we also had a small apartment there, and until her illness, we used to go every every few weeks. We can't go, obviously, can't go now, but. Um, so I have an incredibly close uh, attachment. I know the country incredibly well, and I know, uh, you know, I know about all the lie. I mean, everything you hear about Israel before this, mainly in the media, you know, driven by the sort of the BBC and the Guardian and Al Jazeera. It's not, you know, basically it's all lies and nonsense. Everything's, you know, distorted, just as they distorted everything about, you know, the COVID narrative, the mainstream media. It's been the same lies about Israel. For, for, for many years um and it's interesting that the again people who are supposed to be critical thinkers in the in the supposed freedom movement didn't apply never applied that same critical thinking to israel they again discovered that a lot of these people just accept 
what the BBC and the Guardian say about Israel, whereas they never accepted it, you know, about about COVID and vaccine stuff like that. So there's all of that. But when I was seeing people who are kind of, you know, kind of respected a lot of these people mm-hmm. just come out with this. Well, initially they were they were saying things, and initially a lot of these people were kind of like kind of rejoicing in the fact that Hamas was massacring. Jews, they were yeah. saying, you know, ah, the Palestinians have broken out of their chains and, you know, look at this. You had, this is the thing, they they, they always, it's always, um, there's a small number of anti-Zionist Jews and even anti-Zionist Israelis who are pushing this anti-Israel narrative. People like Max Blumenthal, I mean, he, mm-hmm. you know, he was someone who was kind of like, worshipped by the freedom movement because although not initially at the end he was of course very coming up you know very much against the vaccines and and that type of stuff and ah here we've got a jew who's clearly showing that you know that that israel's to blame here he was the one i mean he i'm just trying to get sort of trying to see what his because he came out with the most unbelievable stuff immediately whilst the yeah whilst the whilst the attacks whilst these murderous attacks these rapes and you know, killing of children were going on you know he said he, he put out a post saying after ethnically cleansing 400 plus palestinian towns in 1948 completely yeah. nonsense completely nonsense and drove them into exile in gaza um it then placed jews you know in their uh, from uh, these other places in their homes their great grandsons have come back with a vengeance mm. he, was, he put that out Whilst the attacks were were happening, um, and then another Jewish uh, anti-Zionist, Rivka Brown, said, "You know, today should be a day of celebration for supporters of democracy and human rights worldwide as Gazans break out of their open-air prison and Hamas fighters cross into the colonizers' territory. The struggle for freedom is rare, is rarely bloodless, and we shouldn't apologize for it." So you get these Jewish. Anti, anti-Zionists and others like Norman Finkelstein that they use, mm-hmm. Miko Pellet, Ilan Pat, they're all proven. A lot of these people are proven liars in a lot of their work they've done in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they're, and another one is a guy called Dan Cohen. People are using, citing these guys because they're Jews mm-hmm. as justification for saying, ah, well, well, first of all, they were celebrating the attacks. Of course, then once I think people got the full scale of how horrific and, and you know how barbarous these were and how inhumane it was, you know, unbelievable. They then sort of backtrack and say, "Ah, well, it's an inside. It must be an inside job. This couldn't have happened <laughs> yes. yeah, without yeah. it being Israel doing yeah. it." Okay, so that's that was the next phase. You know, the next few days, and now, of course, we're getting people either saying it didn't happen at all or. It's all made up, you know. It's all a psyops, you know. These, 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 all of this massive evidence, which of course came from Hamas themselves, you know, it was all. It's Israel, kind of like creating this. You know, this didn't really happen. These, there weren't these dead babies because there's. Oh well, there, there was this story about forty babies with their heads decapitated, and, and there wasn't. It was only actually a couple of babies had their head decapitated, and there was only a couple of babies burnt alive in ovens and therefore that story must be all so you're getting this is and this is now this is now being pushed it's being pushed by lots of antisemites but it's being pushed by a lot of people within that who are in that mm. freedom movement with me and quite some quite prominent ones people I say who I had before respected and so this is incredibly distressing and I I'd never ever 
other than the other than the Andrew Bridgen thing, which was of course directly related to COVID and the vaccines, um, I'd never made any sort of statement. I was quite active on Twitter with COVID stuff, of course, and I had quite a big following, but I never before October the 7th said anything about any anything politically. Mm. Right? I tried to keep it strictly professional. But as soon as I saw this, that I felt no, this is this is now the time for me to speak out and 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 you know speak the, the truth. You know, I have intimate knowledge. Here are all these people who have no knowledge whatsoever yeah. of this conflict. Yeah. Absolutely, they know nothing about it. And here they are putting out this narrative of complete lies and relying on the very same sort type of sources that they know were lying about. Uh, COVID and, and these other things that they challenged, right? Mm. And it just disgusted me. It disgusted me. I had to speak out. Yeah. And yeah. and you, um, I've heard um, Israelis saying that everyone, because, you know, it's a really quite a small population in Israel, that everyone yeah. knows someone who's been affected, yeah. either someone who's killed or a family member who's who oh, was yeah. hurt or... Um, everyone will is know. Is that the case? Yeah, the scale. Because when you're talking about on the scale of you know on one day fourteen hundred people called, because they weren't all they weren't all Jews. There were many. Uh, there, there are many, of course, Israeli. Well, not many, but a number of Israeli Arabs killed. A lot yeah. of foreign uh, workers who work in the the villages and, and the farms in the south there were murdered. A lot of Philippines um, mm. and people like that were were massacred as well. They didn't care uh, who they massacred. I mean, there's like you can see. You know, I don't know if you've seen it, but, you know, you, you, there's actually a video that the Hamas guys film themselves fighting over who's going to chop the head of this of, of these Philippine guys they're tied up and, you know, who's going to be the first to chop the heads. You actually can see them chopping their heads off. You know, mm-hmm. this is the stuff which apparently didn't never happened according to according to these idiots now. But mm-hmm. you can actually see these videos. So but yes, yeah, so a 1400 on a there's only well, there's, there's what six and a half, seven million Jews out of the nine million population of Israel. So on a comparable scale, for example, to, to 9-11, that would equate to something like, that would have been like 60,000 Americans sort of killed mm. in one day rather than the 3,000 there were. But it's, but yeah, so everyone, I mean, in my family, so for example, my niece, that's my brother's daughter, she was, she's a conscript, she's a young, you know, she's you know, a 20-year-old conscript in the in the Israel Defence Force, as all of them are at that age. You know, they, they go in the army between the age of 18 and 21. She was sent, she went to one of the villages that was completely destroyed, Bieri, in, uh, in the south the day after the massacre. And she s- saw everything, you know, saw, saw it all. Um, she... Uh, had to pick up the body parts and and, and solve the mask. And you know, there was not enough medical staff to deal with the, you know, there was you know, just dealing with the injured. So mm. they they were they were using people like her to actually help you know carry the bodies and the body parts and stuff like that. So and she said it's as she's completely traumatized. It was um, uh, you know much worse than anything that's been imagined. And her brother, my brother's son, had several of his son had several of his friends killed on the first day. Okay, and yeah, we hear right. of, and yeah, so yeah, everyone, everyone will have it, will know, you know, at least one, one in Israel will know at least one person who was killed or kidnapped. I mean, incidentally, what we're what we're increasingly finding about the hostages as well, which is absolutely appalling, is that there probably aren't as many 
hostages as originally estimated, because increasingly in the last few days, they're finding remnants, remnants of, of, of people who uh, were so badly, I mean, the bodies were so bad, a lot of them so badly burnt that there's nothing left. And they're finding from tiny fragments of DNA that some of the people they thought must be hostages because there was absolutely no there'd been no sign of them since since the 7th of October, were actually killed on the day because they're now finding, you know, the, the tiny remnants which they can, you know, through the DNA discover are, are those people. So, you know, you've got that, that that's also happening as well. So, um, yeah, everybody, so that's why it's a very small country. And then the, the people just don't understand the, the size of the trauma to the population the fact that this happened it happened on one of the holiest days of the year mm-hmm. uh so not only was it simcat torah but it was a sabbath as well and that you know that doesn't happen a lot so the coincidence of those so even people who are not normally who who wouldn't normally for example go to synagogue on a sabbath would have gone would normally go on that day because it, it coincided with that that festival. Yeah. Um, so you've got that happening. A lot of people who wouldn't normally, for example, switch off their phones would have switched off their phone that day. So that's partly contributes to the sort of the slow response because a lot of people who would have been alerted, uh, who were in the uh, who were reservists or in the army, and even conscripts were given time off, you know, for that weekend. So that's why. There was a slow response. This idea again that it was an inside job. Why didn't Israel know? That's that's another. People just don't understand the scale of the, the of the Sabbath and the festival and how that would have impacted the response. I mean, of course, Hamas chose that day for that reason, and of course, a lot of the the foul intelligence. I think it was deliberately there was a, a lot of I think because of the sort of the Iranian influence. Uh, I think in probably in the intelligence in the USA, giving sort of poor or deliberately misleading intelligence, whatever, was also a contributory factor. But people underestimate the technology that Hamas has with the funding they get from Iran, well, with the technology they get directly from Iran, the funding they get from Qatar. Where they were able to, you know, within I think 60 seconds, actually, with their drone technology, take out the... Uh, the automated surveillance equipment that was there on the southern border and stuff like that. Um, so all of these are reasons why there was a slow response from Israel. But they, the fact that they, you know, they killed all of these observers, many of whom were just these female conscripts who sit there on the border. They were all killed, you know, within sixty seconds of the attack. Mm-hmm. These, these people were, 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 were massacred. So these are reasons why it happened. Again, all of those in the. Who are saying who are giving this nonsense about it being the inside job and the Israelis, you know, uh, you know, must have done this deliberately, are completely unaware or don't want to know these facts about about how it actually happened. Mm. And we're also seeing there's also, I mean, a lot of it is just you know, it's 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 clearly as say anti-Semitism. I mean, it's not so hidden now. I mean, when you see, I mean, a lot of this stuff you see with the mass. This mass move, this mass, these mass demonstrations, you know, which are basically they say the idea that these are peace, these are uh, pro peace demonstrations, the most ridiculous thing of all. You know, they say it, the, 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 this whole from the river to the sea, and that you know the mm. 
Yeah. yeah. The, the chance, of course, means, the to see means they, they're calling for the destruction of the yep. Jewish state of Israel. That's what they, they're calling for there. So the idea that these are peace demonstrations is nonsense. And the idea that, that by calling for an unconditional ceasefire, this is another thing that's 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 really strange, is because they're not what they're not calling for is the dismantle is, is the return of the hostages and the surrender of Hamas. That would, which of course would, then then you, there would be no fight if that happened. They're not. They're, they're they're calling for an immediate ceasefire, which of course would leave Hamas in power. And Hamas have said quite openly that they're going to commit, you know, they'll commit these atrocities over and over again until they basically until they the, the last Jew is, is out of Israel or killed. That's what they want. And people out in the streets, whether it's partly ignorance, it's partly just you know the. Uh, Social media, the the fact that you know the mainstream media is still presenting this as a a kind of a moral equivalence between Israel's response mm. and mm. all of this, all of these things are contributing to this this ignorant hysteria that's going on. I think, yeah, I think, yeah, I, we totally totally agree, and I think that is is so helpful to 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 hear this, Norman. I think one of the things that that's that strikes me. Um, um, well, a couple of things actually about about the, the sort of the freedom movement, if you like, is that I think it's very, it's first of all, it's very easy for uh, for people who are seeking after truth, who are wanting to hold on to freedom. It's very easy for the, the, for them to forget their humanity, and instead yeah. of instead of the 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 goal being okay, we 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 are people ultimately made in God's image. We want to we want to you know live well we want to be compassionate and kind to one another we want to uh, do the things which are actually good we want to pursue truth that gets pushed to the side with the idea that oh look here's another rabbit hole we're going to go down and uh, and you know this is a clearly a zionist plot now and or whatever yeah. rabbit hole you see what i mean and and, exactly. and i think there's a kind of it feels like in the freedom movement in in the the truth movement, whatever you want to, whatever term you want to use, or even the, the skeptics movement, but it's no skeptics longer skeptical. Movement. This, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, it's it's almost like there's a bit of a, a hoodwinking, yeah, that's gone on here, and exactly, nuance yeah. has gone out the window, and it's just like it's like somebody, it's like literally like the rabbit looking at all the shiny rabbit holes and thinking, isn't this amazing? When actually that's part of the con. Exactly, um, and you talk about the humanity there. So, so this is interesting because, as you say. They they're obsessed with this idea of the um, the Zionists you know, being part of this global the global conspiracy, which explains, which of course has also been used quite extensively to explain, for example, the whole vaccine and the the whole sort mm. of net zero climate change. They're saying, oh, it's, that's just, that's all a, it's all part of the, the Zionist global conspiracy, or there's a global conspiracy of which the Zionists are either a prominent part or completely driving it. That's that's there, and so this idea, and it's the evil Zionists, right? And the the they've, they've created this situation whereby if you look, if you listen to all, all those people marching, on those hundreds of thousands of people marching on the streets, and, and not just the that you know the people within you know the prominent voices in the freedom movement but if you listen to all listen to those they've completely dehumanized zionists now zionists are simply jews who believe in the rights of the jewish people to their um historic homeland in in the state of israel and of course jews you know are the indigenous people of israel and, and always were and yet 
there's no humanity. They're, they're, they're now, because, you know, they've classified Zionists as the sort of almost like the epitome of evil, right? Yeah. All of those people who are Zionists, which include all of the Jews in Israel, are completely dehumanized, right? So yes. they talk about, and the, and the things they say about them, right, you know, which is that, you know, the fact that they've been, you know, masking their home, you know, deliberately, and they're equating that with the, with the very unfortunate, you know, there are of course deaths in in uh, civilian deaths in Gaza, which we we know about, but mm. primarily because uh, they're you being used as human shields, and those are genuinely uh, not deliberate. Nobody's deliberately killing those, but but people are saying that that's 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 that that's equal to, or or worse than the deliberate killing of of, of Jewish kids, because those are Zionists. They don't somehow count. They're, they're just you know they, they don't really count. Um, it doesn't really matter. You know those are those are you know it, it's perfectly reasonable for these the, you know these uh, terrorists to 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 kill those because that's just the same. You know they they're saying that, but also the they would they're set they're things like if you just try and articulate what I mean, what will happen? What will happen to these if you say to them, okay, should should the should all the Jews in Israel be killed as Hamas wants? You ask these people, they'll say, no, no, they'll say, we don't want that. No. Well, what should happen to them? Well, they should, they should just go back to where they came from. Right? Well, <laughs> say, they, that's where they were all, that's where they were born, right? And and the ones who weren't born there, most of almost all of them, most vast majority of them actually come from, which people don't realize, actually come from neighboring Arab countries from which they were they were they were they would they, they were the ones who were, who were actually kicked out. Of their, yes. of their of their <laughs> countries there, right? Oh, so should they go back? Yeah, you know, should be should they go back there? I mean, they're not. There are zero Jews in any of these Arab Muslim countries now. I mean, um, it's you know actually interesting enough. The only the only country, the only uh, Muslim country um, where there's any any sort of number of Jews left, where there used to be very very large communities, is is fun enough in Iran. Where I think there's about. Uh, I don't know about seventy, eighteen thousand uh, still there, but in places like um, Egypt, Jordan, Le- uh, Lebanon, Iraq, which used to have an enormous, which did have an enormous Jewish community, uh, Syria, Yemen, all these places, there are no Jews left. There are zero Jews, and yet they accuse Israel of being an apartheid state where there's actually an increasing Arab Muslim minority and yet there are no jews in any of those countries i mean jordan it's illegal to be a jew in jordan it's actually you cannot have jordanian citizenship if you're a jew in jordan so and so you get this inversion but so they'll say they'll say yeah they go back now can you imagine can you imagine if if i if i as a jew said ah well look i live in an area of east london where there are now sort of 40 percent muslims right if i say well actually why don't they go back to where they? Can you imagine these people? If you said, well, they, and a lot of them are immigrants. Well, should they? You know, they're now, you know, um, increasingly sort of, uh, uh, let's say, got political presence on on the council mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And if I'm uncomfortable with that, am I allowed to say, okay, well, those, you know, that's wrong because we live in Britain. These people uh, are not native. Let them go back. Can you imagine if? If we said that you should try and invert that whole kind of like colonialist argument, you know, on them, they just they, these people would be the the first to say that's disgusting. These people, you know, these mm. people, 
even if they're not born here, they're not, they shouldn't, they, they, of course, they're now British citizens. They mustn't, you, you know, they're, they're British citizens. No, but those, those Israelis who were, who were, who were born there, indigenous to it, they've got to leave. They, they, mm. These are the people saying they've got to, they, they have no right to live there <laughs> in these places. So it's just incredible that this, that the, the cognitive dissonance of these people yes. is on a scale. It's yeah. on an unbelievable scale. You know, yeah. they're, yeah. Do you, do you think, Norman, that part of the problem is um, that so many people have such a lack of knowledge of the history of the situation? Yeah. I mean, one of the concerns that Tim and I have and that we've yeah. been trying to learn ourselves more is that for um, Christians today, many um, don't understand enough about our Jewish heritage, don't understand enough yeah. about the Old Testament and the history of the Jewish people. Yeah, that, that's it, and they don't um, they don't understand this uh, that 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 Judaism is completely tied to to the land of Israel. And that's why you know all of the prayers, you know, every prayer talks about the the always the yearning to, to return and the return the need to return to Jerusalem, and uh, and all of the course you know. Well, the Bible is about our, our you know, the, the Jewish uh, people in the land of it, in the land of Israel, and all the prayers subsequent to that are about, you know, returning after exile, because of course the Jews were uh, exiled, yep. in you know by the Romans, uh, uh, you know, two thousand years ago. Um, but the, the the you know they never let go. It was always that was always it's always the intimate part of the religion right is 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 our is our uh, you know that relationship with with the land i mean so yeah people don't understand that they also don't understand that even in ex even in those years of exile there actually always was a continued uh, presence of of jews in you know what became uh, palestine what the romans named palestine simply because they wanted to try and uh, distance any of that, that you know that was their way of distancing the the, the jews from that because it was judea and samaria the kingdom of israel whatever so they mm -hmm. renamed it palestine to i think that's a that's that. a point people forget isn't it that yeah. that with with exile um it's it's different to a land being conquered taken yeah, over exactly. so with exile quite very often a remnant remained yeah, and of course the fact also that, as you say, the land was conquered many times by you know by by uh, different peoples, but it was never there was never any an independent country other than Israel before in in all of those years. So as I said, my grandfather, you know, for the you know the before the the British took over in uh, uh, nineteen seventeen. Um, it, of course, was part of the Turkish Ottoman Empire for several hundred years. And that's why, and people are surprised by this, why up until my grandfather, oh, and incidentally, I, I did put this in my blog, but I haven't mentioned it here, because it's an important part of the story. My grandfather, I would say, was born in Jerusalem. His family were forced to leave, were eventually forced to leave Palestine, but Jerusalem, where they were living, um, in the 1920s, after one of the many Arab pogroms against Jews, which took place. And these were taking place. Of course, this is before the creation, you know, the Declaration of Independence and the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. So people who say, talk about, oh, everything, everything traces back to 1948 when the Jews suddenly appeared and got rid of, you know, colonized, got rid of the Arabs. No, <laughs> my grandfather's family were forced out by Arab riots. 
of which there were many in that period, and Jews were massacred on quite a regular basis prior to 1948. And, and again, another thing which I, um, again, people aren't aware of, they'll say, ah, yeah, but that was only after the Balfour Declaration, which creates attention. No, there were, there were recorded uh, massacres of Jews taking place in the land of Palestine throughout the throughout those years, you know, throughout those two thousand years, you can you can see them. They were taken by thirteen hundred in in fifteen hundred in in uh, sixteen hundred. There were massacres in uh, places like Hebron, which again very holy place to Jews. I mean, Hebron's another interesting example because in nineteen twenty nine, they massacred most of the Jews in 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 Hebron, uh, and. Again, that was, of course, you know, well before nineteen forty-eight. But my, let's say, my my grandfather's family were forced out by these uh, Arab riots. Now, he when he came, they came to the UK, and he eventually was a naturalised Brit, became a naturalised British citizen in 1947, 46 or 47. I think I put the, on my blog, I've actually got the certificate of naturalisation. And what does it say his nationality was up until then? Turkish. Turkish. Mm. He was Turkish because he was born in Palestine, which was part of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. <laughs> and so this idea, people say, oh, this, you know, there was this, the land of Palestine, you know, the, 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 this, they, this idea that there was a, an Islamic or Muslim Arab state of Palestine up until 1948 is a complete lie, complete provable historical lie, uh, because at that point it was part of the British, you know, the British mandate, it was under British control, and prior to that it was the Ottoman Turks, etc. And even in, after the Arab conquests, it was never an independent state. It was just part of the 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 whatever the Arab empires were there. The the Arab they were the colonialists, of course. They were the true colonizers of those lands. Um, but people, um, you know, people are completely unaware of these these facts. They've got this unbelievably distorted note. This is the sort of the if you speak to those young people on those margins, they think, ah. Oh, Night that before 1948, there was this beautiful independent state of Palestine. Yeah, there might have been a few Jews there, but they were living in perfect yeah. harmony yeah. with the with the Muslim Arabs who who ran the place. Um, the funny thing is that when they you know they try and show evidence of this independent state of Palestine, right? Mm. Prior to 1948, and they show things like that there was a there was a Palestine national football team and there was a <laughs> Palestine national currency. And actually, when you look at those, they're all they're actually all the Jewish. Um, the only people who considered themselves to be Palestinian prior to 1948 who called themselves Palestinians were the Jews of Palestine, because the Arabs regard that well, the Arabs were in clans, in villages, or they came from they they came from Syria because um uh, in the early 1900s or Lebanon or e Egypt. Because the Jews there were creating an economy. A lot of a lot of Arabs actually came from the neighboring countries during that period. And the ones who were there before, and I'm not saying there weren't ones before, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the big Jewish immigration in the late 1890s and 1900s, they were they lived in small villages and were only attached to their clan. They didn't have any affiliation. They didn't believe in sort of, you know, the nationalities. They, they Their affiliation was their clan. There was no national Palestinian identity. And different clans and villages had very, very different identities and even, you know, spoke very different languages in different parts. You know, if you go, you know, from the south or the north, very, very different different kind of identities. The idea that there was this 
Now, all of these symbols, these symbols of Palestine as a national entity were, were when the, the Jews created. And so the, the, the currency was, of course, the Jewish uh, was, you know, was a, was a Jewish bank and the Palestine football team was actually the Maccabi football team. And every single one of those actually were Jews in that team <laughs> yeah. and stuff like this. So and even the flag, actually, if you look at the there was no national flag. The only evidence of a national flag was actually a Star of David, which you can see, again, the, the flag of Palestine prior to 1948. I saw and that in your blog. It was it was um, I think you said in the French dictionary. Yeah. Flag, flag of Palestine in 1939, and there it is with the Star of David in the middle. Exactly, exactly, because they're the only the Jews consider themselves called themselves Pal- Palestinians prior to 1948. The the Arab, the so-called the Arab, um, um, let's say nation of Palestine, the Arab Palestinian identity wasn't formed until 1964. It was a KGB operation to create the national Palestinian identity and Palestinian liberation organization, which was formed Mm. in that same year. Up until then, they considered them, you know, prior to 1967, for example, um, in the 1948 war, of course, the, the Jews lost control of a lot of areas of they, they, for example, all of the Jews of East Jerusalem were expelled. All the Jews in Judea and Samaria, places like Far Etzion, places like that, they were all mass, either massacred or expelled. And in and of course the uh, the whole of I mean, remember the Palestine also originally included Jordan, and of course Jordan, the whole of Jordan, of course, was given to the Arabs as part of that. You know that the French, uh, the the British French, you know. Uh, control of the Middle East after the First World War. Nobody ever mentions that. And in fact, that 80% of Jordanians are Palestinians, right? They've already got their very large state there. But in the in 1948, the Jordanian army under British control, of course, took control of the whole of what is called the West Bank, but was actually Judea and Samaria, right? They took control and held that until 1967. And the Egyptians, of course, took control of the whole of Gaza. Yeah. And between 1948 and 1967, where there was therefore Arab countries in control of Gaza and the whole of the West Bank, nobody ever mentioned, spoke about a Palestinian state then. They never considered themselves Palestinians. There was no yearning for an independent, you know, Palestinian state then. And yet that apparently is the area, that's the disputed area that, that you know, is, is supposed to be the Arab state of Palestine. It was only when the Jews took over in 67 as a result of having to fight a necessary war of, uh, to save their annihilation in, in 67, they took control of those areas and took back areas which, I'd say, where Jews had, had lived before. Now, Gaza, of course, um, there had previously been Jewish communities there, and after '67, they rebuilt, re- rebuilt those communities. And there was, up until 2005, about 10,000 Jews living in Gaza in those border in those communities. Many of whom, I guess, then a lot of people there had only ever lived in Gaza. You know, the people been living there at that point for over 50, 50 years. Israel completely would, would, under international pressure completely withdrew from Gaza. Mm. Every single, they 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 forcibly removed 10,000 of their own cities, you know, Jewish people from Gaza. Mm. People, I say, who'd only ever lived there, dragged out of their homes and, and forcibly removed there. And all of the military, every single military installation, every single military personnel was removed from Gaza. And they had the opportunity, therefore, from 2005 
to build their, you know, an independent state there. They've got the beautiful uh, guard, they've got the beautiful Mediterranean coastline. The Israelis left all of these beautiful greenhouses, agricultural facilities. They could have built an incredible economy, you know, Singapore in the Middle East. But no, what did they do? They elected, they choose to, they first, the first thing they did was destroy all the, um, the, those greenhouses and all the agricultural facilities just completely destroyed them. Why? Because the Jews had built them, right? And mm. um, of course, they destroyed all of the synagogues and all of the Jewish houses and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next year, what did they do? They had elections again, which was which um, you know the the liberals in the in the West and the, the you know the the United States said oh, it was going to be a very very good thing. The Americans wanted these elections because they're going to they're going to elect a, you know they're going to have a great democracy there. What did they do? They elected Hamas, the terrorist group, and that was the you know the, that was the terrorist group which had destroyed those so-called Oslo Accords in the 1990s, where there could have been peace, where there was yeah. a kind of peace agreement, yeah. and Israel had essentially agreed to give up all of the West Bank and, and Gaza to make and make it a Palestinian state. But it was it was Hamas who destroyed those by launching a series of this massive wave of suicide attacks against Israel after the Oslo Accords. And um, the they elected Hamas, and from that point on, the rockets started. They started firing rockets, and, and that cycle, they call it a cycle of violence. It's always has been Hamas firing rockets at Israel and Israel responding. Mm. And, you know, nobody ever thought, I guess, that it would get to the point where they would come in, you know, and on October the 7th of this year and get and have the sufficient technology and, and weaponry to come in and, and massacre in their homes all of those Jews in southern Israel. But but that's just the that was just the latest in a long line of attacks from Gaza, which then Israel's responded to. But as we said, because of the because of the unique trauma of what happened on October the 7th to Israeli people. Now it this this is it. This is this is a defining point. Whatever mm. Israel, however mm. Israel responded for, this is now not sufficient. This from this point on, Hamas, you know, cannot continue to be there having any kind of control in Gaza because this cannot be allowed to happen again. So that's yeah. the difference. A, a line, the line was crossed, wasn't it? Uh, look, I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. we're conscious of the time, Norman. So yeah. I mean, but thank you so much. I mean, that's been really, really yeah, just so helpful to to hear that, and I know that'll be really insightful for, for for the people who listen to to this podcast. And I think just to, just to underline as well, like obviously Helen, myself, we're Christians. We're, we 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 talk about things from a what we we call a, a biblical worldview, and and I think what's what we believe it's so important that that the nation state of Israel is is part of that. We believe that's right biblically. Um, there, there, there is a there is a thing called replacement theology, which we we you know I think is is a false thing. Is think it's antithetical to sound theology, uh, but but it, 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 even on a very fundamental level, it's very easy sometimes for Christians to forget that Jesus was a Jew, um, yeah. and and I think. But if you even if you don't look at it from from that angle, even if you just consider this tiny nation, which the world seems to revolve around, yeah. is is astonishing. And yeah. if there is not spiritual significance to that, then I, I, I don't know what is. And 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 yeah, I mean, like you said already, they they they, they are they are Israel is surrounded by countries that sadly want it taken off off the face of of the earth. And and yeah. yet, despite that, still is still here. Um, yeah, which is, and, and which is quite yeah. something. 
And I'd just like to say, obviously, I would like to thank the many Christian friends who've been absolutely, you know, given me tremendous uh, confidence and sympathy uh, you know, during this conflict. And um, that's been, that, that has been, you know, uh, that, that has been very important to me. That, that is so good to hear because, um, you know, we believe anti-Semitism and people calling it anti-Zionism now, but it's a truly evil thing. And as Christians, we want to stand against it. Um, yeah. And today for me, it's been an honour to speak to you, Norman, and thank you so much for giving up what I know is very valuable time. Anyway, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and I, I, I've really enjoyed it. Oh, well, thank you. Well, look, um, uh, we'll keep... We'll keep um, you and, and your wife in our prayers. Um that, that God God would sustain you. Um uh, yep. So please do share this podcast with those you think it would be uh helpful to. Um you can follow us on uh, the links on the Podbean and there's a little telegram channel. Uh, Helen, is there anything you want to add before we Well just and um, where can people find you, Norman? So I've got a website which is normanfenton.com. And I've got uh, my Twitter is Prof N Fenton. Yeah, okay. we'll put the links uh, yeah. in the show notes to all of that. Yes. Thanks very much. Yeah, I almost almost missed the most important thing off there, Helen. Dear you me. did. Oh, no. <laughs> right. Um, well, look, thank you so much. It's been great to chat with you, Norman. And um, yeah, we'll see you on the next one. Yep. Thanks Bye. very much. Bye. Badger.